0: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show, He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California.
1: Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. It is the largest and fastest growing segment of the United States population typically called the baby boomer generation. Those of us born between 1946 and 1964, comprising some 80 million Americans, and our numbers are being added to by 10,000 every day. 10,000, imagine that, 10,000 Americans hit retirement age every single day. As we experience the grain of America, the big question is, how do we go about capturing this amazing block of individuals, not only in terms of harnessing their, their collective talents and skills and ability and brain power and, and ministry abilities, but then, too, how can we most adequately minister to the needs of this growing sector of the population that's, you know, as for all of us that are heading toward uh, the twilight years, you begin to think about the life that you've led, think about... Um, the shortness of the time that you have left and questions with regard to the, the significance of your life and ultimately being heaven bound. Insights on the issue of renewing ministry for and by seniors. We're joined tonight by Dr. Michael Parker. He is co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church. And uh, we appreciate so much uh, your time tonight, Dr. Parker, and being with us uh, to talk a bit about this important topic. Well, thank you. Your background includes that of adjunct associate professor, um, the Division of Geriatric Medicine and uh, Care, <coughs> pardon me, at the Center for Aging at the University of Alabama in Birmingham.
2: We have two centers for aging here in Alabama, one affiliated with our medical school, and then we have a Center for Mental Health and Aging at the, at the University of Alabama. So UAB is actually a separate university with a you know very Uh, And with an outstanding uh, Department of uh, Division of Geriatric Medicine. So I have a joint appointment.
1: This background, of course, uniquely qualifies you to speak to this topic of just how well churches are equipped in ministering to uh, not just the needs of the aging population, but then, as the book also suggests, how to harness this amazing subset of our culture.
2: I think that's part of the problem, if you want to call it a problem. I think it's a a wonderful gift from our Heavenly Father that he's given prolonged life, and yet it seems like we we haven't captured that yet. And so what we want to do is, is think about ministry from seniors first and then during that final season of life ministry to them. If you think about one demographic, it, um, uh, if you make it to 65 on average, and these are just general averages, but if you make it to 65 and you're a woman, you might live another, typically you'll live another 19 years. And four to five of those years might be years of dependency where you need some help. Uh, if you're a man, you, on average you live... Uh, not quite as long, another 15 years, and three of those years might be years of dependency. Um, you know, Billy Graham has just written a book called uh, Nearing Home, and in the opening introduction, he he writes, all my life I was taught how to die as a Christian, but no one ever taught me how I ought to live in the years before I die. I wish they had, because I'm an old man now, and believe, it, it, believe me, it's not easy. And I think that part of the problem is that uh, we need to capture that vision that we need our seniors. We want to issue a call out there and say, we need you. And and then there are very specific things over the 12 to 15 years that we've been doing research with congregations that can form the basis of a ministry. Um, But the the basic idea is to have ministry from seniors. it's interesting uh, how I became involved in, in geriatrics and gerontology. I actually was, was on active duty and uh, I was uh, assigned to seventh medical command. I had great responsibilities. It was right in the middle of, uh, right in the beginning stages of Desert Storm. And my father passed away. And so I came back to the funeral. And when I flew back to seventh medical command, they had a memorial service for my father. And I realized that a lot of my brothers and sisters in uniform um, had similar issues, you know, aging parent issues from a distance. And so I um, uncovered this wonderful National Institute of Aging Postdoctoral Fellowship at Michigan. I applied and got accepted. And then I had to apply, and then the Lord had to do some great things, and I had to apply for a long-term civilian training from the Army Medical Department. And I got that. And then, as things wind down in the military, you have to kind of iron out your assignments a year out. And uh, my colleagues in psychiatry said, "Parker, you're going to do a child and family fellowship at Walter Reed." And I said, "Well, I'm not. I'm not going. <laughs> and uh, I want to go to Michigan and and." Uh, And they, you know, basically said, we're a young army, and and you're going to have to do the fellowship at Walter Reed, or you put your career in jeopardy. So somebody said, I should go talk to my boss, and uh, this was a two-star general who had the weight of the world on him. And uh, we were responsible for medical care for Desert Storm, and... uh, and when I went in to see him, he mirrored the, the ideas of the you know psychiatrist, my colleagues, and then he said, "What are you going to do there?" And I said, "I'm going to you know thank you for coming to my father's memorial service," and I told him what I just shared with your listeners uh, that you know I was interested in studying caregiving and particularly distant caregiving, and his whole countenance changed. And he said, "I just got a call from Iowa from my family priest, and he said your mother is leaving the gas on the stove." What do you want to do? And you see here, you have um, captured in his story what's going on almost across the country, nationwide, particularly for those who care for aging parents from a distance. And he said, you know, he wanted to honor his country with his service and that he had been training all of his life for, and yet he wanted to honor his mother. Um, and uh, it, it's a it's a challenging. Uh, significant life event that most people at midlife face, and it's something we need to prepare for. And so we talk a little about that in the book. And um, so that's how I got involved. Uh, He said, tell those gentlemen that you are going to Michigan, and the next day, you know, they congratulated me for sticking to my guns, and and off I went for a wonderful postdoc in Michigan, which changed my life, you know, and my professional trajectory, so that's a quick intro into how I got into this.
1: You know, the amazing thing is that we see so much focus these days on uh, health care issues for seniors and uh, approaching that aspect of the physical needs of uh, the the graying segment of American population, yet there's so little spoken of when it comes to meeting to uh, meeting the spiritual needs. And we're going to spend some time focusing on that when we come back after a brief timeout. Dr. Michael Parker is with us tonight as you hear a retired lieutenant colonel from the United States Army, serving now as associate professor at the School of Social Work. And Mental Health and Aging, the University of Alabama, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. When we come back, how to uniquely meet the spiritual needs of seniors.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Talking about the grain of America tonight, 80 million of us in that generation called the baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, and as some 10,000 of us every single day reaches retirement age, it begs the question... How do we go about focusing on ministering to this unique and growing segment of the population, not only in terms of, of harnessing the talent, skills, and abilities that they have uh, as con- active contributors to the church and ministry in the body of Christ, but then, too, what about ministering to their needs? There's lots of focus these days, of course, about health care and, and uh, care services for the elderly and the aging. As much as we talk about the physical needs, though, what about this aspect of meeting their unique spiritual needs we're talking about that in this segment of the program with us dr michael parker co-author of a new book entitled a vision for the aging church renewing ministry for and by seniors let's talk about this you know every church uh pretty much uh, anywhere in america has a youth ministry or a young singles group are we going to see the day dr parker when many churches will also have an older adults ministry
2: Yes, in fact, uh, a lot of people kind of age out of youth ministry into senior ministry uh, from our experience. Um, but the, the problem is that we're not addressing it systemically in our in our seminaries, and we're not preparing people for, that, for the fact that people are living so long. And so that's kind of an area we've been working on. And if, if you look at something even um, as challenging as a disaster like Katrina or the recent F5 tornadoes that we had come through Tuscaloosa. Seniors um, um, are hit more severely because of that. Uh, Roughly 70% of the casualties from Katrina, 60 to 70% were seniors and 80% of those dear people belong to congregations. And so one of the responsibilities the church has, I believe deacons and elders, is to make sure that we have Kind of a, a safety net to help older people prepare for the kind of disasters that might be characteristic of the geography where you are. Um, I lived in Monterey for a while, and I know some of the dangers you face out there, and really, I think you know our deacons really need to take responsibility for making sure that our seniors are safe you know in the, in the event of a disaster uh, here in Tuscaloosa, where the f five tornadoes hit, and one Uh, church alone we had four deaths um, related to the tornadoes and they weren't directly related they were indirectly related in the sense that they were affected by the consequences and the dislocation of the tornado and they didn't adjust well so that's just one small area that i think churches can step up um helping the the, you, you were talking about some of the statistics you know some would argue that one in two over 80 will suffer from dementia, and roughly two thirds of those will be Alzheimer's disease. And we're diagnosing that um, awful disease earlier and earlier now. What does someone do with that knowledge that, you know, they're basically going to lose their memory? And for a Christian, it's the loss of memory of God, their memories of God, their memories of Scripture. What assurances can we give them? And so the co-author on our book, uh, Jim Houston, who by the way was mentored by C.S. Lewis at Oxford, wonderful scholar, uh, the most joyful Christian at 88 that I know, and brilliant, has you know, helped me write a chapter on kind of a, a theology of dementia. And he would say that we need to reassure anyone who's been diagnosed, and I'm cutting to the basic idea, is that they're remembered of God. And they can trust him and that's just one nuance again of how we might develop some ministry
1: do we also need to see you made reference to the issue of seminaries and schools that are preparing pastors and those for full-time ministry do we need to see the beginnings of development, Dr. Parker of unique ministries? Because I think of the needs, as you say, of whether you're ministering to people who are Alzheimer's patients or their loved ones, uh, those that are just, even as the longevity tables do what they do. And we're seeing people living longer and longer. I mean, the growing number of centarians for example, right. in America is, is significant. The needs that they have is not just like treating the older end of the demographic within our congregation. Well, Pastor's in his 60s. Surely he can help meet the needs and, and pray for and care for somebody who's in their 70s or 80s. That may not be necessarily the case, especially as we see folks that are 90 and centarians
2: Absolutely. And, of course, these people are not able to travel. Um, they have mobility issues often and some frailness. And the church can be a part of helping people age successfully, by the way, to look at it. Um, from a positive point of view, we can help people avoid disease and disability. We can help them kind of maximize their cognitive and physical fitness. We can help them be more actively engaged in ministry and in life. I think all our congregations can do a better job of asking our senior saints to pray for ministry and to engage in Holy Spirit-led ministry in the latter stages of life. Uh, You look at Examples like Dr. Houston and Dr. Graham, who are, um, who, their notion of retirement is not age-graded. You know, we, we live in a very age-graded, uh, society, and our seminaries are not immune from that, nor are our churches. We think we, we go to school, we go to work, and then we retire. But the truth is, we, if we're lifelong learners, we go to school our entire lives, uh, we really work our entire lives. And, and you know, so the these are structures that are really lifelong. So we, we go to school, we work, and we um, um, need to take respites along the way. So those concepts really don't work. And the church needs to challenge, you know, to provide kind of a countercultural perspective on the value of life in the final stages. And be involved in helping develop uh, caregiver support programs, uh, helping churches partner that are too small to manage these programs, help us uh, you know do some late life planning end of life aging in place initiatives, uh, helping people prepare for um, uh, caregiving and now we 're talking about you know middle stage adults who are worried about their aging parents and then challenging the the elderly to engage with their young adult children about their their long-term care plans. The long-term care industry in this country is broken, and it's in trouble. And, you know, when you look at the statistics that suggest we have more people over the age of 65 than we have 18 and younger, those uh, demographics are not going to change. And so it's kind of the elephant on the table. And we we have to help the church embrace it. And the good news that these senior saints are around; these elders are lo- around longer and can help us. So you know, involving them in uh, small group life so that they're nurturing and loving younger people, um, uh, witnessing to the power of Christ in their lives, uh, and maybe setting up kind of a life review ministry so that you're capturing these stories of these wonderful senior saints. And putting it to film, and there's a lot of work being done in that area. And we know from uh, our research that when someone completes a life review in the right way, it's an antidepressant. And so when somebody listens to your story and your story of faith, it really is... uh, encouraging that person and affirming and uh, there are all kinds of lessons there that can be learned and applied by younger generations
1: developing a vision for the aging church renewing ministry for and by seniors new book co-authored by our guest on this segment of lifeline dr michael parker the new book by the way published by University press available at bookstores throughout the bay area as well as through amazon.com and dr parker thanks so much for the time and the insight If you were to take a snapshot or a profile of Americans, certainly I think it can be said that we have a love of our cars, a love of our technology. We love our entertainment, and we certainly love our sports. In fact, in many respects, the love of sports as a pastime seems to be in many ways uniquely American. Now, there are sports like soccer, which certainly are international. Baseball seems to be fairly global as to um, perhaps basketball. But football? Football is uniquely American. We enjoy our sports because it's a time of diversion, entertainment, it's big business, it's athletic skill, character building, and role modeling. Well, perhaps more accurately put on those last two points, we seem to see less and less of role modeling and character building in professional sports today. And that's a growing concern, especially in a day and an age when so many young people are so yearning to have role models in their lives. Joining me today in studio is Jim Grassi. Jim is the founder and president of Men's Ministry Catalyst. He is the author of a number of best-selling award-winning books born and raised in the Bay Area. And he's got a brand new book out on the topic of football and faith called Guts, Grace, and Glory. And Jim, is always great to have you with us.
3: It's always a pleasure to be here at KFAX and to see you, Greg. We've been around together for many years we have indeed shared microphones before we have indeed and a
1: pleasure to do it with you again today on this important topic and and one that I think Jim is getting more and more attention this issue of professional sports and what's happening in the arena of professional sports and sadly not all of that attention is good attention now most recently just to quickly address the sort of elephant in the room has been the protest that began here as we all know in San francisco with the 49ers colin kaepernick protesting some of the issues concerning what's happened in places like charlottesville and certainly in ferguson and 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 to be sure um, we have a lot to be worked on in the arena of police relations with minority communities race relations at the broader level Uh, there's a lot taking place there too but that said, there's also, I think, this this looming issue within professional sports that it isn't what it used to be. And by that, I mean anybody that's been around the game for more than a while and knows names like Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle and Johnny Unitas and Babe Ruth and and Willie Mays can certainly understand that there seems to have been in the last mm, 15, maybe 20 years, a major paradigm shift. It's remained America's favorite pastime, to be sure, but what's happening to the character building, the role modeling within the industry, and maybe there's the operative word, it's become America's industry, seems to say a lot. If it's true, as I said in my opening remarks, Jim, that um, a lot can be said about or learned about America because of our interests and our pastimes, then I was supposed to, when we kind of pull the curtain back on professional ball these days, it says a lot about who we're becoming, and it's not a good reflection.
3: Oh, that's for sure, Craig. And um, as a student of the game and, and a person that has been associated with football from the inside a little bit i served in the capacity as chaplain for the raiders for a number of years for the 49ers for a year uh have had uh, deep relationships with another number of nfl coaches and players um I say that as background to say this. You you nailed it when you said about 20 years ago, because I started this work with uh, my chaplaincy with various uh, sports teams um, just about 25 years ago, and the character I saw trying to be portrayed among players at that time is different than what I see today. I'm still connected at some level with some coaches and some teams, and I occasionally speak to the entire team about this issue of character. In fact, I know it sounds like an oxymoron, and for those listeners that would think that the Oakland Raiders would have a chaplain and character coach, that was my official title given to me by John Gruden when he was coach. But they say I failed at my job.
1: (laughs) It challenges at least. It's challenges.
3: (laughs) But, you know, um, not to put everybody into the same light. Um, Within the NFL, uh, all the teams, uh, and I'll speak specifically NFL, they've done uh, the Giants and Colorado Rockies at one time. Um, They have chaplains, and they have uh, chapels that – the men attend, and um, there are some real men of great character and faith, the Steve Wisniewskis of the world, the Rich Gannons, the people that I had the privilege of getting to know, the Napoleon Coffins, and folks like that, um, that really want to uh, embrace and um, uh, become those men, those strong men of faith and character. Uh, as role models for their teammates and for the community. But what we remember with the Joe DiMaggio's, the Willie Mays's, and the Johnny Unitas's and all that, there used to be a sense of uh, pride and ownership among the men about being a good role model. And certainly there were the exceptions back in those days, but I have before me a, a, a list that I did for the show, of research Uh, Since 2000, in the NFL, there's been 656 arrests of NFL players. And by team, the worst team, believe it or not, is the Minnesota Vikings with 42 arrests, and all the way down to the St. Louis Rams, uh, now the L.A. Rams, with eight arrests. But the reality is that... um, You know, people uh, are coming into football with a different mindset and background. Uh, Today, uh, my unofficial research in the NFL is that of the teams I've spoken to, roughly 70 to 75% of the men did not have a father, a biological father in the home when they grew up. And so they did not have a sense of values and stewardship of their gifts and talents that, you know, we, we assumed is common among athletes.
1: So you're really seeing then a breakdown or the results or the impact of the breakdown of the nuclear family. That's right. And sadly, then, you're seeing sports become more and more of a reflection, pro sports, more of a reflection of what's happening in society as right. a whole.
3: And, and so the respect factor, the honor factor, the stewardship factor of what character is, and maybe we want to even define that for our listeners, uh, those things are not a given, and hence they have a person like myself come in and talk to the men about character and character development, protecting the legacy of the sport, of your name, of your family. Um, I remember I was at a 49er training camp. When Coach Mariucci asked me, you know, to speak to the whole team, and obviously in the role as a, quote, character coach, I have to use be more generic, but I bring in the faith aspect, because to me, you can't deny that. But I had one athlete come up after, and he said, uh, Dr. Grassi, um, what makes you think that I asked to be a role model? And I go, well, man... Uh, you know, he said, I didn't ask for this. And I said, by virtue of what you do, you are a role model. The question is and whether you're a role model or not. The question is, what kind of role model are you going to be? and how do you want to be remembered what's the legacy you want and part of the thing i do with the teams during these moments is i have newspaper article after newspaper article of various athletes who've stumbled and failed miserably shootings murders uh... and whatnot and i bring up these names and i says these guys many of were all pro players and they're not going to be remembered for their statistics or there are uh, things when you remember Ray Lewis or other place, uh, people that I could name. I mean, there's a host of them. Uh, you immediately go to how the, what they did that they're remembered for. And that's what I try to communicate to these young men that are so impressionable and have the resources and the networks and everything that they can get lost in, in this uh, whole maze of... Sin. And and I think there's a broader lesson there, too, Jim, uh,
1: for all of us to say that. If you were elected president of the United States, you could argue that, you know, I didn't sign up for the job that says I have to be awoken right. at two o'clock in the morning because some fight has broken out in a country 10,000 miles away that might not even have been interest to the United States. And yet the president of the United States has a responsibility. Every job comes with its responsibilities. And That's some good. we can embrace, like the responsibility of picking up my paycheck every two mm-hmm. weeks and and others, we say, guess what? It is just part of the job. And, and that leads us to, I think, an important point that I want to come back to after we take a brief time out. And that is what seems to also be a major paradigm shift in attitude. And that observation you just shared uniquely points to this as to how the players see themselves. Today, it could probably be argued that most of them simply see themselves as famous as opposed to intrinsically seeing themselves first and foremost as role models. Let's come back to that point. Jim Grassi is with us today in studio, the founder and president of Men's Ministry Catalyst, and you can get information, by the way, on the web at mensministrycatalyst.org. That's mensministrycatalyst.org. Jim, as he mentioned, is the former chaplain with the San Francisco 49ers, the Oakland Raiders, authored a number of best-selling books, including his most recent book, Guts, Grace, and Glory. A brief timeout back with more as as our conversation with Jim Grassi continues here on Lifeline.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to the program. We are pleased to have with us today in studio Dr. Jim Grassi, founder and president of Men's Ministry Catalyst, author of a number of best-selling books, including his most recent book, Guts, Grace, and Glory. And Jim, we've been drawing some parallels here between what's happening in America today culturally, socially, morally, and how that in many respects, sports are a reflection on who we are as a people. And if that be the case, what we're seeing in the mirror these days is not all that encouraging. You mentioned some of the greats, Bart Starrs, the Johnny Unitas, the Joe Namaths on the baseball side, people like Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio, others, that young people of America, and as we were growing up, we looked up to these figures We saw them for not only their incredible prowess on the gridiron or on the diamond, uh, but also for who they were as role models. Sadly, it seems as if, and, and reason with me, is this true from your perspective, from your vantage point? Are more and more of these players today seeing themselves less as role models and more just as famous people? Is that part of the problem?
3: Well, I, I think it even goes beyond that, Craig. I think people, a lot of athletes today, not all of them, but see themselves as entertainers. And, you know, I submit this to you, Craig. If I have a broken leg, would I go to my dentist to ask how to fix my leg? And probably
0: not a
1: good or idea. Or
3: would I go to my plumber or my mechanic to ask how to fix my leg? You see? And yet... Uh, people, some people in sports today see that they've been been given a God-given platform because we know all gifts, all our talents, all our abilities come from God. And they think this platform gives them the right to use that platform to tell me about politics, to tell me about respecting the flag, to tell me about whatever. Now, I look at it this way. If KFAX were to pay me a check uh, monthly for services to do the great job you do, and I just want to do a sidetrack, no one's paid me to say this, I've had the privilege in doing books and radio and television interviews for 20 plus years and you are the best interviewer I've ever had. Well, thank you, I, I, I mean it, And I hope the, the audience goal, goal, is God. appreciative. All they have to do is go outside their universe here and they would see that you are truly a gifted person that way. But coming back to the topic, the reality is if KFAX are paying me a check, okay, uh, they are not paying me to give my viewpoints on things other than what they're paying me for. Now, can I outside the KFAX radio station give my viewpoints on things most definitely I'm all for free speech I'm all for unity among the races I'm all for men standing up for what they believe I'm all for that but I do not I feel it is a disrespectful thing to um, take a platform that was given to you that you earned, that you worked for, but nevertheless that you have a respect and right to the ownership who's paying you to represent what you do. In this case, it's football. I'm not going to go to a football player and ask him how to fix my broken leg. Okay? And I I think that that we're seeing a reaction. I um, just got out of a meeting this morning talking with a pastor who asked me about this because because I've done so many uh, books on the subject of football and faith and all this kind of stuff and using football's metaphor, I have literally uh, this binder that is in front of you right now is a stack of emails and um, uh, media stuff that's come to me about the question, this very question that we're dealing with right here. And looking for an answer to this profound and and confusing thing. How can an athlete uh, disrespect our flag and be paid for that? And it's okay with the NFL, according to their most recent position, that they do that.
1: Well, and I think the other thing even deeper to this, and and I realize that this tends to hit a, a raw nerve and on the broader topic of the challenges that we as a country are facing in terms of racial relations these days, it, it is a raw nerve, and understandably so. I, I mentioned to you off the air a couple of weeks ago. I had dinner with Pam Tebow, that is Tim Tebow's mother, and of course a very strong family. Um, both of Tim's parents been involved in the missions field. In fact, uh, Tim was raised in the Philippines when his dad was working there as a missionary. So they are strong, solid evangelical believers. And uh, I asked her opinion on this topic of what do you think about the fact that we're seeing these protests across the country uh, taking a knee, and yet when your son took a knee in prayer... Or in showing gratefulness to God for a victory on the gridiron for the touchdown and scoring that he was absolutely eviscerated in the press... Mm-hmm. And And was forbidden from doing that action, taking that knee by the NFL. Mm -hmm. And the disingenuousness of all of this, that one is acceptable, but suddenly the other one is not. One seems to be politically correct in this moment in time. And the other one, well, let's face it, um, Christianity is not all that much in fashion anymore in this pluralistic society where more and more it seems that secular humanism is reigning supreme.
3: Yes, and I've had a couple NFL coaches call me and uh, that I correspond with and talk to on a weekly basis because they have uh members of their team coming up going coach. I don't believe in what a couple of players are doing and my dad served or I served and I'm having real difficulty and what what happened it's become a distraction and you know the NFL owners are trying desperately to put this thing behind them But the social media is not allowing them to do it.
1: Well, and part of the problem I think here too, Jim, is the fact that this is this is a valid discussion point. America should be engaged in this dialogue. Right. But instead of being engaged in the dialogue of what's happening in race relations and and in the relations that minority communities are experiencing with civil authorities, police, so on and so forth, instead of getting that dialogue going, we have half the country that says, uh, "Let them go ahead and take a knee," and the other half of the country that says, "Wait a minute." I have a father who served, a grandfather who served, mm-hmm. I served, others that I know that maybe even died on the battlefield, and they see the national anthem, the, the flag, as symbols exactly. of who we are as a country and what we should be working toward. I mean, the irony right. is that we should see those symbols not of something to, um, to act in defiance toward, but rather say, this represents... What we should be striving for, listen, the Declaration of Independence, the phraseology of all men created equal, was done so at a time when slavery was still allowable and still accepted and still legal in this country. Our national viewpoint did not really sync up with the ideals that we established the nation on. So what do we have to do as a people over the course of the next 100 years? And it's sad it took that long. But over the course of the next 100 years, we had to work toward righting that wrong. And I think seeing the goal that we need to work toward is where our focus should be. And sadly, that message has got lost amongst the din of the politicizing of all of
3: this. And and that's my point exactly. Uh, I hope your listeners will know. First of all, I grew up in East Oakland uh, during the time of the race riots. And yet, our ministry works with hundreds of African American pastors in in the Oakland area, trying to help them to reach the men in their community, to to help them because many of these men do not have uh, biological fathers in the home, and uh, I, I believe that's what that's what bothers me most, Craig, about this whole thing, is that this has been a distraction to what could happen off the field, you know, people, we'd all agree that we live in a broken country. You and I are broken. We're not perfect role models every day. You know, we strive to be, but We aren't. We're all broken. But the reality is that with all that's going on in this world today, we need some releases. And you and I would agree that number one release needs to be in Christ Jesus and through His Word. But secondly, sports has been a release for people. Watching Guys who are very gifted and and very loved uh, do their thing out on the field on Sunday or Saturday or during the week like yesterday with the Warriors. We love that. So now we don't have that as a relief, you might say, and the tensions are building in this country. People are, I've never seen this country more angry, more discouraged, more frustrated, more down and out than it is today. And I'm not saying sports is a cure-all, but let's not take that, that uh, area that we used to see as kind of an area where we could relax... Um, and to now bring up all the the issues going on, I, I'm a firm believer, and I know KFax is with their upcoming um, seminar on uh, unification. The word is unity. You know, you mentioned our past heritage. Uh, George Washington said this: "Unity of government is important to the citizens of the United States because unity supports our independence, our peace, safety, prosperity, and." And liberty. And I'm amazed at the number of times as I prepared for this show, the number of times the word unity comes up in scripture. Paul, in numerous letters, talks about unity. Christ, in the great commission, what does he talk about? He t- talks about that we should love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy mind, all thy soul, all thy spirit all our being and then he says but the second thing is equally important to love your neighbor and I think the conversation has to come back how do we love and respect one another as human beings it doesn't matter what our our skin color is it doesn't matter uh, that we should be focusing on the past in our, our breakdowns of the past that we need to focus on our future and what we can do to build a stronger country, to be more unified. It's interesting to me, the word unity, it starts with U-N-I, hmm. unity, right? Yes. And community, from the word unity, is in community. And so you and I are in community, Okay? And the first three letters of community is what? Command. C-O-M, come, which is translated as command. So it's a command of God through His Word that we should be unified, unified in spirit and thought. And so when we have these distractions that touch on, on, uh, uh, portions of our heart and spirit that are so um, important uh, because there's been people and and um, our our background and relatives of the flag and all that it's a distraction from where we should be talking
1: indeed so and so sadly then instead of a dialogue about what we need to work on how we need to come together how we need to tear down these walls that divide us and address these very legitimate concerns Instead, we're debating whether or not it's disrespectful, and we run off suddenly, the the conversation runs off the rails. Dr. Jim Grassi with us today in studio. He is the founder and president of Men's Ministry Catalyst, the author of a number of best-selling books, his latest, Guts, Grace, and Glory. Information on the web at mensministrycatalyst.org. That's mensministrycatalyst.org. A timeout back with more as Lifeline continues.